Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. All right, everybody, shake off the cobwebs. The holiday is over. It is time to get back to talking about politics 2020. As I said at the very beginning of the show today, one of the most consequential years in politics that I think any of us have seen for decades. And we're going to be here now, not not three, not four, but five days a week to talk politics uh, with you on Political Rewind. That means we're adding a show Thursday at 2 o'clock, a live show Thursday at 2. Um, we'll be talking about the Senate race. We'll be talking about congressional races, particularly up in the 6th and the 7th district legislative races where Democrats hope they can turn the House Democratic. Um, we'll be talking about the caucuses, the primary. You know, the, the Iowa caucus is three weeks away, Jim Galloway, three weeks away, February 3rd. That's just a, that's, that's a hiccup. That's crazy. We are the seasoned Jim Galloway, <clears throat> chief political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, whose column appears on Wednesdays and Sundays, but who oversees the Political Insider blog, is really upon us. Uh, it is uh, – uh, here's, here's hoping that I can get through, get through <laughs> with all my faculties. I am just uh, – it is, you know, a presidential two two U.S. Senate races, yeah. at least two hot U.S. House races. Yep. yep. Uh, and and the big question of whether the state house will stay Republican or not. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that Democrats are going to do everything they can to turn Georgia into the new Ohio and uh, turn it blue for in the presidential race in the fall. That remains very much to be seen, but we'll certainly be talking about it in the weeks and months ahead. So, Jim, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're introduced. You have a good New Year? Oh, we had a delightful New Year. It was good. a little soggy, but but the last couple of days has, yeah. has kind of brightened up everything. Yeah. We got chores down. We've we got we got we we got the the the, the roast beef eaten. Yeah. Amy Steigerwald, Georgia Hello. State University political science professor. I'm glad to have you on our first live show of 2020. Thanks for having me, and Happy New Year to everyone. Yeah, you, you had a good New Year, I hope? We did. We have now moved New Year's Eve to approximately 7 o'clock <laughs> so that all the children can participate and we can all yeah. be in bed, and it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I think, I think 10.30 was about the time that my wife yeah. and I decided we'd had enough. Although I have to say, watching Andy Cohn get Anderson Cooper drunk on CNN's New Year's Eve show is one of the funniest laugh-out-loud things I've seen. <laughs> Anderson Cooper is a very serious journalist, but he's also a very funny drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremiah Olney is uh, with us, too. He's a part of uh, – give me your exact title at Paramount Consulting. You work, of course, with Theron Johnson. Sure. Principal at Paramount Principal. Consulting Group. Principal at the Paramount Consulting Group. Do you have candidates still? You've been, I know you've been sort of on the edge of having candidates to represent. Or have you have you plunged in now? Not yet. Still on the edge. Okay, but you're looking. I mean, we wouldn't refuse an offer. You're not going to go through the election cycle <laughs> without representing someone, are you? I certainly hope not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being here, Jeremiah. Of course. Uh, Edward Lindsay is back with us. Um, Edward was a state rep. For the uh, for the city of Atlanta mm -hmm. uh, in the state legislature, right. a Republican, and uh, now is he oversees the government relations practice for Dentons, which I'm not sure I've ever mentioned. It happens to be the world's largest <laughs> law firm. Well, th thank you for mentioning that because it doesn't get discussed here often enough. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all for being here. Let's start um, uh, on a serious note. In fact, let's move forward on a serious note. Um, we had some breaking news late this after, this morning, Jim. Uh, John Bolton, who has been one of the most sought-after witnesses first in the uh, House's inquiries uh, on impeachment in the Intelligence Committee, uh, he refused to come in. They asked him. They withdrew a subpoena, but they asked him to testify. He didn't want to do that. Uh, and, uh, and, and Nancy Pelosi has been saying that he is one of the people they absolutely need as a witness in a Senate trial, which may start up sometime in the weeks ahead. Uh, Bolton today, I think, surprised a lot of people by issuing a statement saying, 
I will testify if I'm subpoenaed. Um, what kind of development is, is that, and what does that mean to uh, McConnell, to Mitch McConnell, uh, if he tries to continue to say we're not going to have witnesses? I, th- I think it presents more of a challenge to Republicans than anything else as far as, to, as, as, far as the structure of an impeachment trial goes. As, as a witness, I don't think that they were I, – I, Democrats really didn't pursue Bolt, John Bolton that hard. They had Fiona Hill. Uh, and they, uh, and who is his subordinate? Uh, he said, and she's the one who said that uh, he described Rudy Giuliani as a hand, hand grenade ready to go off, that was going to kill them all. Uh, but I think, as a witness, if he says he's ready to testify, I, I think it almost it obliges Republicans to, to to look at him very closely, and that gets to the point as to whether you're going to have the have have. Uh, have the speeches first and then the evidence, or then the uh, the evidence and then the speeches. Yeah, Edward, um, you're the Republican on the panel today. Do, do you think this puts McConnell under pressure to call witnesses after all? Well, it, it's difficult to say whether or not McConnell ever uh, takes pressure from anything. Uh, he, he, he likes to run the Senate. He believes that this is his purview and he runs it his way. It may very well, as Jim said, put some pressure on on Republicans. Keep in mind that uh, that is not totally his call. That it's up to 51 uh, senators uh, can decide uh, the scope of evidence that will be heard, and uh, there are several uh, Republicans who have indicated uh, over the last few weeks that they might like to hear some some evidence. So there there's two questions there. Number one is whether or not there will be any testimony. And number two, who will be uh, there uh, to testify? Uh, certainly, uh, the Democrats want uh, Ambassador Bolton uh, to come testify. I'm like Jim. I think it'll be a, probably a wash. Uh, but there are some Republicans that want to see uh, Hunter Biden and perhaps even the vice, former vice president to come testify. So it could very well turn into quite a carnival before it's all over with. Do you, you know, is, is Hunter Biden going to really be called to testify along with his father, Jeremiah? I mean, I'm sure the Republicans will try at this point. It's, this is a rare and delightful moment where Ed and I agree on something, is that I don't think Mitch McConnell is really susceptible to pressure, honestly, certainly not from without his party, but I don't even think really within his party. I mean, from 2009, when Barack Obama was elected, he said his number one priority was making sure he got nothing done. I mean, this has been probably the most partisan time the last 10 years in modern American history. And I think his main priority right now is protecting the president. Even the Republicans who've come out and said, oh, I might want to try. We might want to hear witnesses. No one's really come out and put their foot down and said, I want this to happen. We need this to happen. This is essential. I think what's going to happen is when push comes to shove, they're going to kind of flip and say, well, we don't really need impeachment trial, and then it'll go, and that'll be a big victory for Trump, which is all they really care about right now. All right. I want to talk about the interesting legal uh, uh, matter that Bolton included in his statement. Uh, and, Amy, you and Edward both could really talk about this with, with uh, uh, some expertise. So here's what <coughs> – excuse me. Here's what Bolton said. Remember that uh, the House had subpoenaed Charles Kupperman, mm-hmm. uh, who worked at the White House, Uh, The White House had told him he was not allowed to testify. The House said, no, no, we insist that you testify. Kupperman threw up his hands and said, I need guidance. And he went to the courts and and asked the court to decide who was right on this issue. Was executive – does executive privilege prevail or does a a congressional subpoena prevail? Uh, Eventually, the House dropped its subpoena – and it was ruled, and so the courts ruled this to be moot. Bolton said he was waiting for that decision, mm-hmm. and uh, since it never came, he now had to decide on his own whether he felt he should reply to a, t- a subpoena in the Senate trial. Right? Yes. Now, the other side of this is that there was actually a second case going on simultaneously where the, the same issues had been brought about um, – Replying to subpoenas, but also claim sort of broad claims of executive privilege and who could be sent to testify and who could not, not just about the impeachment trial, but actually in quite a lot of things of of different hearings that are being held. And in that decision, the court ruled that the claims that were being made on the executive side uh, were too broad, that there was not sort of this blanket executive privilege that applied. And also that executive privilege is only allowed to be authorized by the president in specific instances, not with 
uh, sort of a broad claim and not exercised by the individuals. It's only the president that can actually authorize it. And so what we now have is actually this weird situation where part of the reason why the House was willing to sort of let it become a moot issue is because what that did is left this other district court decision, which says, no, you need to show up for the subpoena. Yeah, although, Edward, it's interesting that in his statement, uh, Bolton takes a shot at the House. He says <laughs> the House committee went so far as to withdraw its subpoena to Dr. Kupperman in a deliberate attempt to moot the case and deprive the court of jurisdiction. Well, I, I, technically, he's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. But the fact of the matter is, and to go back to, to Amy's point a moment ago, this actually a little bit more background. Uh, for those political junkies out there. This actually dealt with a subpoena that was issued to, I believe, the White House, former White House counsel mm-hmm. uh, as from the, from the House Oversight Committee going back uh, to the Mueller uh, investigation uh, to show you how long these things yeah. sometimes take to go through the courts, which was perhaps another reason why a lot of uh, uh, the House uh, Judiciary Committee chose to drop the subpoena uh, mm-hmm. uh, against Bolton for the idea that, okay, we didn't want to draw this out for five, six months. Uh, it does show, uh, quite frankly, sometimes how slow the courts can can react. But uh, like Amy said, what the court, the court came back with saying, yes, there's something called executive privilege. Uh, yes, it's a valid uh, privilege that can be raised at, at the appropriate time. But that doesn't keep you from, from having to go in and testify. <clears throat> Uh, what it does mean is that you go in, you testify, and when you hear a question that is subject to the uh, executive privilege, that's when that right. privilege can be asserted by yeah. the president. Okay. Uh, you can't simply just do what the president did, which was simply uh, order uh, folks not to testify at all. All right. Well, we're going to watch how it plays out. And, of course, uh, the, the whole notion of whether the impeachment trial is going to start anytime soon, whether Bolton will be called or not, is overshadowed by what's happened in Iran over the past few days. And a little later in the show, we're going to talk about the impact that's having on national politics, but also really on politics right here in Georgia. But before we do that, Jim, uh, this is a, uh, an important day for uh, the state of Georgia. We have a brand new United States senator being sworn in at 5 o'clock today. Johnny Isaacson effectively resigned as of the end of 2019, and at 5 o'clock today, Brian Kemp's choice to replace him temporarily, uh, Kelly Loeffler, will be sworn in by the president of the Senate, Vice President Pence. Right, right. And uh, it's uh, I think uh, we figured out that her first vote, if she hurries into the Senate chamber, would be the uh, would be a confirmation of the next head of the Small Business yeah. Administration. Yeah, I think there's a quick procedural vote that will lead <coughs> yeah, to a that closure vote. vote. There's a closure, a closure vote. There's right, a closure exactly. vote. So, okay. Uh, but this is this is kind of the beginning of when we're going to learn what Kelly Leffler is all about, because uh, she, she again she has not she's uh, she's been very very careful and she has stuck to her notes uh, whenever she's going to face the public. She she appeared in Cobb County uh, on Saturday morning at their month uh, the monthly GOP. Uh, uh, a breakfast. It was a sold-out crowd. It was, it was ticketed, so the, the kind of the the audience was was selective in in a sense. Uh, but no questions were allowed. She spoke for five minutes, so we we really don't know what kind of senator she's going to be. Yeah, we're going to watch uh, Jeremiah. It's interesting. Uh, that, uh, Jim's uh, colleague Tia Mitchell, the mm-hmm. new AJC correspondent in Washington, is going to join us on tomorrow's show. And one of the things that I'll be interested in hearing what Tia has to say about how this afternoon and evening unfolds for uh, Leffler is uh, she's going to have to walk the halls of the Senate. She's going to be out there where there are reporters like Atia and others who are going to be doing their best to uh, get her to answer their questions. It's it's in many ways. I mean, she she has been around the state over the holidays, mm-hmm. uh, talking to small groups of people. But she's right in the cauldron now. Yeah, honestly, I'm a little surprised she hasn't taken this opportunity over the last two months or so since her appointment was announced to kind of practice. You know, dealing with these difficult questions, talking to more journalists, putting herself out there to really explain what kind of senator she's going to be. All we really know about her is over the last two months is all we got when she was announced. There was a sheet of talking points Republicans sent out about how she's very pro-Trump, pro-life, pro-Second Amendment, the sort of things you'd see in your traditional Trump tweet and how that's really all we know about her even now. And we also know she's very much going to be against the impeachment vote in the Senate when the time comes. She's kind of made her positions clear on a lot of these things. 
And I think it's going to be difficult to kind of back those things up now and confront it with reporters in the halls without having had practice to do that already. So, Amy, uh, we've talked about this before, but we're going to get another chance to see it as she does start speaking publicly. Um, This hope that the governor has that having a woman appointed to this job and then, of course, run for the seat down the road in in November uh, will uh, uh, give them the chance to re-engage women in the Republican Party. Uh, But there's a question of whether women are going to be engaged on issues that she's decided to uh, stick with early on in her uh, now beginning career. No, I think there's definitely some interesting issues here, because I think on the one hand, it does seem very clear that what she is most worried about at this moment is an attack coming from the right, right? Having Doug Collins run against her um, in the election, not as much from the left. And so there is sort of always this issue that normally we think about you go out sort of more to the sides during a primary. You come back in for the general election. In this particular election, there is the there's not a traditional primary. It's a jungle primary. Everybody gets to run. And so what she really needs to do is ensure that there isn't anyone else from the right that's going to enter the race, because then that could help split the vote. Um, The other side of it is, again, as you said, I mean, a lot of the especially uh, the data that's coming out of like the sixth district, the seventh district, uh, especially from women voters, is concerned with some of the sort of far right um, positionings where she has definitely sort of placed herself. The religious liberty bill is an issue that a lot of people have expressed concern about. reproductive rights are sort of always within there on the issue. And we've sort of seen a lot of the voters that are shifting there. And so there's this real concern about how is she going to appeal to them, right? It's one thing to get the base and particularly that about 35 percent kind of Trump base. But what about those beyond it that you need to bring back in who, you know, perhaps don't want it to be this kind of traditional candidate? Edward? Well, one thing, let me sort of respond a little bit to to what Jeremiah said uh, you know, keep in mind that uh, she's been drinking from a guard from a um, from a fire hose the last month. Uh, she uh, was charged with uh, setting up a Senate office <laughs> and getting that up and going. Uh, there's a lot of and, and organization a staff. There's yeah. a, there's a mm-hmm. campaign staff that has to be put together. There is a Senate staff that has to be put together. Uh, there is all kinds of other uh, matter behind the scene matters that had to be done, and that is where she is largely focused on up to this point. But Jeremiah is right that that come you know today at five o'clock. Uh, the more public uh, side of her job uh, becomes more apparent and that she is going to be stepping out and she's going to be having to answer questions from uh, from constituents and from the, the from the, the press and the general public. Uh, and she's going to have to uh, start uh, taking hard positions and taking hard votes on, on a lot of different issues. Uh, I think that she's going to uh, come out looking pretty good, to be honest with you. I mean, this is a woman who uh, has, comes from a, has a sterling background when it comes to business. Uh, also has a very strong background uh, when it comes to health care, uh, having served on the uh, Grady board uh, for a number of years and helped uh, be part of the the team that helped uh, bring that Grady back to where it is right now, which I think all of us uh, believe it is a jewel uh, for the state of Georgia. And she's been part of that. So she's going to have a lot of knowledge when it comes to uh, that health care debate that we all anticipate happening. What I have found also interesting, this is sort of perhaps back to Jeremiah and, and some other folks as well, is why haven't we seen a Democrat emerge? Well, that's uh, a great right you know. question. Mm-hmm. Uh, because right now, Jim, that's exactly what I was going to ask <laughs> next, is right now Kelly Leffler is being given a chance to define herself, who she is, without anybody stepping in, except for some of the more conservative Georgians out there who are really upset with her because they think she's a liberal, but no Democrat. Democrats have given her a five-month pass. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only the only Democrat who has announced against her is Matt Lieberman, the son mm-hmm. of uh, Joe Lieberman, the former U.S. senator from Connecticut, uh, <clears throat> who, by the way, has just endorsed Donald uh, Trump's strike on uh, the Iranian general. So, uh, so it kind of puts a brings some family politics into that candidacy. Yeah. But, but you, we have heard nothing from 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 Washington Democrats about this much vaunted plan about trying to to build a ticket uh, that will that will reflect uh, both not just the the Purdue race but the uh, the the Isaacson now Leffler race as well. It's 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 actually 
stunning given the 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 2019 rhetoric we've heard uh, about the uh, about the state turning blue. You know, Jeremiah. So here's what people like Michael Thurman, who who talked about this very thing the last time he was on the show, right before the holidays. <clears throat> here's what he and others are saying. Uh, they're saying we're being careful, and of course, Michael is being thought of as a potential mm-hmm. candidate for that second Senate seat. So we all, as Democrats, want to be careful to see if we can come up with a consensus candidate, one person who can go against uh, Leffler uh, in in the fall and maybe other Republicans. Um, and that sounds like a very strategic plan, but it doesn't answer the concerns that, that Galloway is expressing that others have been uh, talking about here. Sure, and I think those are legitimate concerns, and I share them as well. But going back to it being a consensus candidate, I mean, this is a very special election, you know. In November, everyone's going to be on the ballot. We really can't afford to have three or four or five Democrats in the race all ripping each other apart and creating a window for Kelly Loeffler to be at the top of the ticket. The thing is, assuming Doug Collins doesn't run, which, you know, he might, uh, she would be the only Republican on the ballot. She has an immediate 40 percent of the vote, at least, that and, she's going to get. And $70 million. And, and mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of money, <laughs> which I kind of want to touch on as well. I mean, the fact that she has already said she's going to pump $20 million of her own money into this race is an incredibly intimidating thing to do. I mean, our campaign finance system is so broken now that candidates who would otherwise run, how can you come up against you know millions of dollars in ads and millions of dollars of online ads and newspaper ads and everything else where this name is being blasted out there and you've got to go out and spend half your time raising money when she just could spend all of her time doing her job and spending her own money to run for office. It really makes it harder for someone like a Michael Thurmer or people who've dedicated their lives to public service to really be competitive in this election without spending a tremendous amount of time on fundraising. Yeah, by the way, I, I mentioned Michael simply because he was talking about this on the show uh, not long ago, but we also know that uh, Jen Jordan uh, has been talked about a lot for this seat. There are certainly other Democrats out there. And you've, you've got Jim. all the Democrats in the in the in the Purdue race, one of whom, one one could, or more of whom who mm-hmm. could swap over, could swap. And, and you know, JMI has a point in terms of uh, plumping down twenty million dollars. But keep in mind that if the Democrats didn't believe that her to be a credible candidate, they'd still be willing to do so. Uh, the fact is, for instance, we see on the presidential level, uh, some billionaires uh, be willing to get into those races mm-hmm. and run, and yet that hasn't kept the Elizabeth Warrens and and the Bernie Sanders and the others uh, from getting out of the race if, because they don't necessarily view those billionaires as having uh, the necessary chops to win. I think, quite frankly, a lot of the silence is based simply on the fact that uh, a lot of friends of mine who are Democrats are telling me that this was probably the strongest choice that the governor could have chosen. So, uh, a- Amy, uh, it, we, we've uh, mentioned Doug Collins a couple times already. Mm-hmm. As recently as I believe this weekend, Galloway, you may check me if I'm wrong, yeah, yeah, he right. was on a Fox News show mm-hmm. and he was asked whether he was still considering making the run and he did not close the door. I think. It's, is it fair to say he not only didn't close the door, but he kept the door relatively wide open for the possibility he could run? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I obviously only know what he said he in his said, public statements, yeah, but he, he said, said, he said yes. a lot of people are talking to me about exactly. this. Exactly. I mean, there's what, what he certainly interest. didn't do was shut down any of the chatter that's been going on. Right. And there's been a number of times where he's been pretty clear that that's, I mean, he was very clear that he wanted that seat. He also was very clear that if he wasn't offered the seat that he would run. And so there is, you know, some sort of expectation that he might do that. And I think that's sort of a question that's going to go in there. And that may be the other thing. I mean, sort of back to this question of what's going on on the Democratic side. What's going to happen on the Republican side? We still don't actually yeah. know. And that's going to make everything very and, interesting. And, the, and that's and no doubt that's one of the, 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 the ingredients that Democrats are waiting on to see if yeah. there's going to be a challenge from Doug Collins or, or so. from someone else there. Bill, the, the other thing I would point you to is, is the fact that Senate Republicans are, are, are already kind of taking care of of Kelly Loeffler. Uh, I mean, if last week there was an amicus brief uh, filed in this Louisiana uh, mm-hmm. abortion law uh, suit. And I think you had 35 Republican. There were 13, 39. 39. 39. There were mm-hmm. 13 Republican senators who did not sign the amicus brief. Uh, I think Eight of them were running for are running for reelection. One of them was David Perdue. Yeah. But Mitch McConnell was another one. And and in in that sense, I think he's giving giving newbies like uh, Kelly Leffler kind of a a little bit of uh, of of support. 
interesting. Well, if, I, if I may also add one other point when it comes to whether or not Representative Collins will get involved in this. A lot depends, and, and this is what I suspect will happen, is that Mitch McConnell will tell the president, uh, she's our senator now. Uh, she's in our, in our club. She's going to uh, almost definitely be voting to acquit you. Uh, you need to line up behind her. Uh, and if you go back and look over the last three years, uh, when it came to these quarter races, uh, the president has followed uh, the uh, the recommendations of McConnell uh, and has stuck with whoever McConnell has recommended uh, that the president yeah. go with. And and I expect that's what he the question have here. for you. And if and if Trump and if Trump doesn't back Collins, that that closed the door on. Yeah. Though I guess question for you, because I mean, what do we do with the statements, right, that Trump made in the lead up to the announcement of Loeffler and also a lot of the statements that were made by sort of, you know, other people that are in Congress and in national politics that were, you know, for example, like threatening uh, Brian Kemp with having someone run against him for not doing this. Like, do you think that basically that'll all sort of be forgotten, or is that going to bind them a little bit? I will tell having run a lot of campaigns over the years, mm -hmm. and Jeremiah mm -hmm. has run a lot of campaigns over the years, it's amazing that once a party decides which direction to go in, all, yeah. all past discussions are forgotten, <laughs> yeah. and and we now move on and unite. And and and, and yeah, I hear you. Okay. But I do expect uh, those to be solid. All right, let's okay. let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. We have a lot more to talk about when we come back to political rewind. But uh, first, uh, these messages. <laughs> My name is Dana Brown. I am the program manager at the Georgia Adoption Reunion Registry. Our goal is to help persons impacted by adoption experience healthy reconnections to impact healthy well-being. We underwrite with GPB because of your extensive listening audience that covers the state of Georgia. It's an effective way to get the word out about what we do across the state of Georgia. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. An entrepreneur thought she had found an investor who was keen on her business. Then he tried to use a promise of funding to extract sexual favors from her. I just thought, is this what I'm going to have to subject myself to if I want to raise this money and build our dream? How she responded and the latest in the confrontation between the U.S. and Iran. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us for All Things Considered this afternoon from 4 to 6 right here on GPB and gpbnews.org. Uh, during the break, Edward uh, Lindsay, Jeremiah Olney, Amy Steigerwald, Jim Galloway, and I decided on uh, Doug Collins' future and decided he has so many <laughs> options that he shouldn't even worry necessarily about getting into this particular United States Senate race. So, done deal. We'll wait. <laughs> uh, Jim, uh, you know, nobody follows the state budget the way your colleague James Salzer does. Uh, and, and he wrote a major piece this weekend in which he talked about the very tough budget decisions that uh, Kemp and the legislators face this this coming session, which starts, by the way, I don't think I've mentioned it, next Monday, a week from today at 10 a.m. Um, and he based it on the fact that in 2018, they made some decisions that put them in a, the difficult place they are now, where the governor feels he has to call for for large budget cuts, both in the current budget and the budget they'll be passing for the next fiscal year. So uh, so let's talk about about some of the issues that are going to confront legislators uh, with the budget. Yeah, you have to take it back to December 2017 when the when the U.S. Congress passed uh, uh, passed uh, the, the the Trump tax cut to the corporate tax, uh, reduced the corporate tax and, and did a whole lot of other stuff with with the tax code. Uh, the legislature began convening uh, the next month, and it was an election year. There was intense pressure to cut taxes. Governor Nathan Deal suggested that that uh, that the that lawmakers hold off until we see the impact of the, the federal tax cut. They said no, thank you. They 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 decreased. The, it was the first decrease in the state uh, income tax in years. It's a the the state income tax is essentially a flat tax. Uh, it's at, at at six percent. They lowered it, I think, by a quarter of a uh, of a point, and uh, with the promise to do 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 more later on. Well, now is later, it's later on. on. It's later on, and you've got some serious revenue uh, uh, income problems 
that are being cited, that, that, that suddenly the state income is stagnant. It, it, unemployment is at a record low. Uh, we have a comp- consumer-based so- uh, economy. Uh, people are spending money, and yet income into the state uh, pocket. Uh, a pot of money is 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 flat. Yeah, Edward, you of course know this uh, well, having uh, gone through it as a member of the House yourself. And member of the Appropriations Committee. Uh, the, <laughs> thank you for reminding and us a, of that. A subcommittee chair at one point. So, I mean, one of the interesting things we're hearing from some of, of the folks over down at the Capitol right now is we don't have uh, a spending problem; we have a revenue problem. Well, yeah. And uh, right now, we probably have a little bit of both because we are constitutionally required to balance the budget. And matter of fact, that's the only thing that the uh, General Assembly is required to do underneath our state constitution. And while this will be a a difficult year, uh, I do like to remind people, and having been there in 2009 and quite frankly chairing a subcommittee in that year, in which we had to go from a $21.2 billion budget to a $17.4 billion budget in one year. It, it this was, was, this was the Great Recession. Yeah, yeah it was I, What I'm saying is, is that this doesn't seem all that bad uh, to a lot of folks. And keep in mind that there are a lot of folks down at the General Assembly who are veterans of those times. Uh, Terry England, who's the chair of the House Appropriations Committee, was part of that process. Jack Hill was the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee. So they've seen this before. Uh, and and what I do suspect the, that we're going to see is there's going to be some some shavings here and there. There's going to be some hard looks, for instance, at some tax credits that are given and some other giveaways that are viewed uh, that are given. Uh, but uh, but uh, and it will be the primary focus of this year's uh, general assembly. But we're not going to have to see the draconian situation that we had to see in 2009, 2010, 2011. No, but Jeremiah, there is still, as Galloway pointed out, a plan on the table to reduce taxes again during this session. The last time they did this was 2018. Mm. And, of course, it was an election year. Right. It's now 2020, an election year, and still hanging out there is an additional rollback of taxes, particularly on higher income Georgians. Yeah, that's the thing. This would be a tax rollback on higher income Georgians. This is functionally a tax giveaway to people who are making a lot of money already. If you look at the numbers and how this would affect people, if you're making over $500,000, the few of you in Georgia that do, you'd save maybe $3,000 a year. If you're making, you know, median salary, $60,000, $70,000 a year, you'll save maybe 50 bucks every year. And at the same time, people who save even less, maybe no money whatsoever, they're the ones who will be affected by the services that have to get cut as a result of these tax cuts. I mean, you look at social workers or public defenders. They're the agencies that are going to suffer underneath these tax cuts. What we should be doing right now, because we all, I mean, there's a general consensus that we might have a recession on the horizon next year or two years. We should be shoring up the budget by pulling in more revenue, building up our rainy day fund, making sure people have access to these services for as long as possible. But instead, we're going to make them harder to access. I mean, right now, Georgia's already running an extremely lean budget. We don't really have much fat to cut. We're down to the bone now. Georgia's operating I think with 17,000 fewer employees than we were just before the Great Recession, we already don't have enough people to complete these services. And that's why we have high maternal mortality, high poverty rates, low health insurance rates. I mean, we are... Well, wait, wait, let me be careful. Sure. Yeah. I just want to be certain that when you say that's why we have these issues, yeah. it's a con- you would call it's it a contributing, contributing factor. factor. It's a contributing factor. I don't yeah, want let me the, be clear. I don't right. want mm-hmm. the tweeters to start going after you. I, I, I appreciate <laughs> God forbid the tweeters come after me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, you're right. I appreciate it. It's a contributing factor. But the fact is, we do have a revenue problem. We don't have a spending problem right now. And and I'll tell you one of the deals that uh, that that is that could be shaping up right now, is you take a look at the eight hundred and seventy million that uh, Georgia gave away for the film and TV yeah. mm-hmm. uh, tax credits to to do business here. Uh, you already have Lindsey Tippins, uh, the state senator from uh, Marietta, a Republican, talking about maybe reducing those. Yeah, you wrote a good column and, on that and, very subject. And and uh, and over, over uh, last week, uh, Brian Kemp said he's willing to work with people who um, want to do can, that. Your column is online still, isn't yes, it? Yes, absolutely. Why don't yep. we see? Hey, Sam, can we post a link to Jim Galloway's column on that? It also, by the way, is a subject we're going to take up on tomorrow's show. In, in some depth. Uh, we've got so many different things happening today. We're not going to do quite as much today. But that's exactly right. That's one of the things that really will mm-hmm. come into play in this in well, this Well, and year. another one was, and I can't remember if this was your column or Salazar's column, but mentioning also like the fuel tax breaks as well, right, that primarily benefit. Yeah, the jet fuel Delta. tax. Yeah, yeah, the jet fuel mm-hmm. tax. So, Amy, of course, you know, I recognize that that 
people's eyes can glaze over when you start talking about budgets. I, I mean, we know they're important, they're consequential, but I think an awful lot of us look back and, and we get sit back and we I, I don't know what to make anything. But when services start getting affected, that's when the rubber really hits the road. That's when people do care about what's happening. And that's one of the concerns that Jeremiah is talking about is are we going to see service cutbacks? The governor has been adamant in getting mm-hmm. out there and saying, I never wanted people to lose their jobs. I wanted to do mm-hmm. accomplish all this through technology, through eliminating positions that aren't filled. But the message isn't going his way in many cases right now. I, there's been concern, um, including, you know, the people in the agencies of where are we supposed to cut this? Because some of the problem also that, you know, again, it's sort of getting wonky, but there's a lot of parts. There are things that Georgia state government does, but the money doesn't necessarily come from the state budget. So, for example, if we look on the environmental side, there are a number of things that we do where that funding actually comes from the federal government. So even if you look at like X, this is what. Uh, the Department of uh, Natural Resources, where EPD does, a lot of their funding, it's only a very small proportion of it, which actually comes from the state. And so then those things that are out of the state funds get disproportionately hit. Um, I was also struck by um, Representative England mentioning that, you know, the need for increased funding for education was pretty similar to the amount that would be lost if there was that tax cut of sort of signaling of where these sort of priority trade-offs are going. And I think education is a big one. I mean, what do people fight over? Lines over how school districts are drawn because we all know education is super important. One warning I'll give folks, if I may, Mm -hmm. uh, as we go into uh, the General Assembly and the Budget Week, which is the week after that, and folks testify and and agencies start coming up. Agencies generally, whenever they're told to cut, well, the first thing they put out there is the most popular <laughs> program right. available yep. uh, to, quite frankly, so, sort of sort of get the, the legislators to go, well, maybe we ought to go look at a different department <laughs> rather than this department. I remember the fight one time, you know, when, when I was in charge of education appropriations, uh, of course, the, what, what group did they come in and want to try to cut? Uh, school nurses. <laughs> and I'm going, no, 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 we're not cutting school nurses. We'll find it somewhere else. Well, and when UGA had to do that during the recession, top of their list was 4-H. Yeah. And so well, look out for that. Exactly. Uh, th- th- those are a lot of red herrings that take place uh, rather than to sort of look at some of the, the harder uh, ways uh, to cut in which uh, the departments aren't so crazy about. All right. As always, when we talk about the state budget, I need to make the disclaimer that GPB is a state agency. We get funding from mm-hmm. the state. Uh, that funding does not go to our programs, to the content, to Political Rewind, to On Second Thought, uh, nor does it pay for salaries for people like me. But we do have state funding that keeps the lights on and, and is used for many other functions here. And I just always feel like I need to make that clear to yep. everybody out there. So, Edward, are, do you, what is interesting is we – and we got to go to a break. But I think Amy hit on something that I want to hit you up on. Sure. Terry England, Jack Hill, these guys are not – they have not signaled that they're ready to make peace yet – with the governor in terms of his plans for these big budget cuts. I mean, we could see pretty good fight. It may not come out. It may not be a public fight. It may all happen behind closed doors. But there's, well, there's going to be some fighting over I this. would expect there to be some. I all mean, right. the, 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 the school nurse situation is just yeah. one example. Yeah. Yeah. That was a Governor Purdue proposal. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, when we got in there, we found cuts elsewhere to, to get that back down again. So, yeah, yeah. I do expect uh, the, the, the House and the Senate to exert – uh, its authority over the budget and go, well, you know, Governor, yeah, this is where that you thought needed to be cut. No, we we believe it needs to be somewhere else. The only thing that's hard and fast is that the governor gets to set uh, the expected amount of revenue. That's a hard number that the General Assembly has to work within. Uh, but everything else is negotiable. And, yeah, I do expect there to be a lot of And and, and you you do have a good bit of resentment still bubbling in the House because Kemp ordered those cuts Mm -hmm. to begin, I think, in early September. Yep. Uh, and and so so uh, the House budget writers never ha- have haven't had a chance to to really examine what's what's being cut. All right, that's it for this segment. We've got to take a break, and when we come back, uh, let's look a little bit at the fallout from the Iranian 
uh, situation, uh, uh, Kasim uh, uh, Soleimani's uh, uh, death. And uh, we'll talk about it from a Georgia perspective after these messages. GPB's vehicle donation program provides an easy, convenient way to support public radio for you and your community. We'll even pick up that car, truck, or SUV you've been wanting to get rid of for free. Give us a call, 877-GPB-1-CAR, or go to gpb.org slash cars. We truly appreciate supporters like you, and thanks. On the next Fresh Air, Todd Phillips, who wrote and directed the new film Joker, a realistic origin story on the Batman comic book villain. The Joker, played by Joaquin Phoenix, is a troubled man with a history of serious mental health problems. Phillips also directed the Hangover films. Join us. Fresh Air this afternoon at 3 here on GPB. You can also listen live online at gpbnews.org. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind, our first live show of 2020. Two significant things uh, happening starting today. Um, The most important is that we are really thrilled to welcome all of our listeners at WUGA Radio for uh, most of the six years that we've been on the air with this show, or coming on to six years, uh, WUGA has carried the show on Fridays. We've been thrilled they've done that. But now that we're on five days a week, they are carrying us live every day. And we can't tell you how much that means to us because we have learned that you're an incredible audience out there at WUGA. And who would expect anything less from a community built around the University of Georgia? So we're thrilled to go talks. (laughs) We're thrilled to have all of you uh, with us from out there. One other quick note. Um, You know, we 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 have a kind of a TV version of this show. You can always watch us on Facebook Live, but but over the past year, we've kind of been on TV and off TV on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. It's been, it's kind of an elusive thing, and I've been sorry about that for people who've tried to follow us on TV, and I'm very happy to tell you that starting this Friday night, you can watch Political Rewind at 7 p.m., and we will be on 7 p.m. for Friday's uh, well into the next year, except for high school football season. So, <laughs> all right, Galloway, you got that straight? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll wear helmets the other weeks. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jim, the, uh, uh, the attack that took out one of the most charismatic leaders of Iran, also uh, a man considered almost universally to have been a, uh, a terrorist, a killer of Americans and many others, uh, uh, General Soleimani, uh, his death, uh, it, it's been interesting to watch how mixed the response has been. No one will say that he didn't deserve his fate, but there are serious questions being raised, and unfortunately almost all along partisan lines about whether this was the right time. No, it was, it was, it, it's not whether, whether he deserved what he got, it's uh, whether it was smart for us to yeah. deliver that. Yeah. Uh, it uh, it it raises some very very serious questions of what happens next in Iraq about whether we stay there, if U.S. troops as as the the Iraqi Parliament has 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 demanded that we leave. Uh, I, I'm not sure that that's that's going to be that the military the Iraqi military uh, is 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 on board with that. But if that's the case, then Iran gets a stronger hand in Iraq, not a not a not a a smaller hand. Uh, it, uh, you know, it puts us on pins and needles for the next however many days while we wait for, for uh, Iran's reaction to this. Uh, it, it, it stands to make a Cold War hot. Uh, the, the other part of this, of course, is Iran has backed off the nuclear. Uh, it, it's, it's now uh, saying it will abide by no, no more, uh, none of the agreements that, it was, that were reached uh, during the Obama administration 
on uh, nuclear production. So we will have a uh, we will have to decide whether Iran is allowed to go nuclear or whether we will go after those those uh, nuclear facilities ourselves. And of course, it all comes, Amy, uh, as the political season heats heats up to an intensity that we'll see happening all year. We've watched it right here in Georgia as an example. Uh, Doug Collins, to no one's surprise, was one of the first uh, members of Congress to jump to uh, President Trump's defense. Um, he uh, praised the president for being mm-hmm. willing to take out a bad man. He said, don't mess. The message says, don't mess with America. Uh, uh, Purdue, David Purdue said that Trump showed that when American lives are threatened, he will not hesitate to act with strength. On the other hand, uh, you had people like Hank Johnson, Democrat, mm-hmm. uh, condemning the move. But up in the 7th District, this became an issue that uh, uh, between a Republican and Democratic candidate up in that congressional race. It did. We had on the one hand, um, as it was Nabil uh, Islam who uh, suggest or Nabil Islam that suggested, uh, quote, Trump just assassinated without approval of Congress. The second most powerful person in Iran uh, was sort of concerned that this could set off kind of a broader war um, because I think it is sort of it, it's difficult to understand that this is not the same thing, for example, as like when we took out uh, al-Baghdadi, because this is someone who works with a sovereign so, country. Yeah, I mean, he actor. is. Mm-hmm. He is, in fact, a state actor as opposed to a member, right? Even if we've declared, right, that the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Group is a terrorist organization at the same part, they're part of a state group. And so that makes it kind of a different thing. But on the other hand, right, Senator, uh, State Senator Renee Unterman responded by saying, quote, the president has every right to act against a serious threat to yeah. our national security. And I think that's one of the issues. I mean, one of the big issues we're seeing come up is this question, not necessarily of was he a terrible man who did a lot of bad things? But what was the imminent threat that has been um, that supposedly predicted this because or predicated this um, because there hasn't been a very good answer on that. Uh, the secretary of state was out yesterday and, and wasn't giving a very strong sort of response of on some level. Yeah. Why now, as opposed to any time in the last, you know, 10 years. All right. We're, we're going to watch how that unfolds in the weeks ahead. I want to p- park. You want to jump in real quick? Yeah, Edward? if I may. Uh, keep in mind, uh, we, we've tried engagement uh, with the Iranians. Uh, that did not deter their uh, their terrorist activity. Uh, did, uh, you know, you can argue about the, the nuclear deal, but it didn't didn't deter one one bit their terrorist activities, promotions. We've tried uh, active engagement. Actually, did I really don't believe you can you can say that it, it, it deterred them at all in 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 their operations around the globe. We tried uh, engagement uh, when uh, the president uh, pulled out, believing that sanctions could deter their their, their terrorist activities. Uh, it didn't. Uh, we're going to have the the Iranians uh, engaging in terrorist activities or promoting terrorist activities around the world. The question here is well, two questions. Number one uh, is having uh, General Soleimani uh, out of the picture. Is it going to make it more difficult for the Iranians to act efficiently uh, and effectively? And number two, uh, does the president and his team have a plan in place to deal with whatever comes next? All right, that we don't know. Yeah. Real quick. Yeah, real quick. Uh, I would uh, I would point you, Bill, to February 4th. That's the date of the State of the Union address when we could have a president addressing the nation when he is both under impeachment and we are at some sort of war on some sort of war footing. Um, as I, I, I want to park that because we'll have plenty of time to talk about this in the weeks ahead. It is going to obviously remain an issue both from national security uh, points of view and also in the politics that we're going to deal with. But I, but I want to very quickly at least mention something, uh, Jeremiah, that, that Jim already referred to. Mm-hmm. He talked about the fact that this past week, 39 Republican senators signed an amicus brief supporting the position that Louisiana's anti-abortion law, which is what it is, we don't have time to go into exactly what it does, but it's an anti-abortion law, and David Perdue didn't sign on. And this is a guy who is pretty well hewed a a conservative line throughout, and I was fascinated that he didn't sign that brief. I thought that was fascinating, too. I like to think I can't be surprised by too much more these days, but that was very surprising to me. I mean, he's been in office for nearly six years now. I feel like the cat's out of the bag. He can't go back on all the things he's said and done over the last 
five years or so. This doesn't really change his position, but I don't really know what he's trying to do if he's trying to give, you know, our new senator our, a point for another few hours cover. He's trying to create a more moderate position because he sees how Georgia's trending. I mean, if you look at the map of Trump's approval ratings across the country, Georgia looks a little bit bluer than a lot of traditional battleground states do. Like, I think maybe he's seeing the writing on the wall. And if he wants to be more competitive and not have to, you know, fight tooth and nail to win this thing in November, he's going to have to try and appeal to a more moderate base than he did last time. I don't think that's going to work, but I understand the instinct to try. Edward, I don't imagine that David Perdue anytime soon is going to be reluctant to talk about his pro-life position on issues. Well, I I look forward to hearing him uh, discuss why he did not sign. Uh, the fact of the matter is he has a very strong pro-life position. Uh, that's not going to uh, be uh, be diminished by his failure to sign on this particular document. Uh, and in the end, uh, his position is what it is, uh, and we'll see what happens whether or not that's a d- dominant issue. Uh, I think the bigger concern for Democrats is who they will choose to run against him because right now the field is made up of folks uh, who hew very hard to the left, and that's going to be that's going to give Purdue uh, a pretty good avenue to to move to the center. I, I love Amy the characterization <laughs> that we. I, this is what I wish we had twenty more minutes. <laughs> I'd love to hear what Edward means when he says they quote hew very hard to the left. But we'll let that go for another <laughs> another show. Do we have to? Some more specificity <laughs> might be a good. All right, go ahead, real quick. No, I don't. I would hardly say. I mean. I would say the most left-wing candidate in the race right now is Ted Terry, to his credit, for doing so. But, I mean, I think Teresa Tomlinson has made very much a point of running a sort of a rural strategy and trying to bring voters in the Democratic Party who and may not have otherwise found a home here. <laughs> hard to the left, how? All right. We don't have 20 right. more minutes. I'm sorry. We are out of time. Uh, Amy Steigerwald, I, this is totally out of the blue. Okay. Uh, what are you most looking forward to in the political world in, in 2020? You have about 20 seconds to think of it and say it. I am curious to see what are the numbers of engagement both of female candidates uh, and how they are perceived in both parties. Really I have a number of I'm give a plug to a bunch of my dissertation students that are looking at questions of how to, for example, increase the number of uh, female Republican candidates and sort of what are possibly some of the barriers that have prevented there from being uh, more female candidates. And so I'm oh, curious what happens. Th- that was great improv. This is one of the reasons you're so uh, you're on the show so often. Oh, Edward thanks. Lindsay, is there any one thing you're really looking forward to in the political year ahead? Well, uh, a presidential election year for political junkies is like Christmas, 365 <laughs> days a year. Exactly. So I, I look forward to all those things that I did not expect to see happen. Jeremiah, I don't know what that, we'll find out what that means, but Jeremiah? Well, I'm really looking forward to it being over. Um, <laughs> other than that, I think it really will be interesting to see. We've got two parties now that are Hewing, certainly, I wouldn't say hard left, but farther left and farther right than they have in a long time. We're really staking our claim, and there's not a lot of ground left in the middle, and people trying to... I'm really curious to see how those people who are staking the more moderate positions do. Your turn. You got anything? Uh, I'm praying for a a Senate race number two that does not end on January 5th. Yeah, let's get it. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's get it over with in November. Well said, Mr. Galloway. Uh, Jim Galloway, Amy Sagerwald, Edward Lindsay, Jeremiah Olney, thank you for a terrific way to kick off the live political rewind uh, in uh, 2020. We'll see you tomorrow, Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday, we'll see you, oh, Thursday and Friday (laughs) at 2 o'clock. Take care, everybody.